0: Hello. Hello.
1: Hello, and welcome to Grace Online.
0: We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today
1: because we know that God is already here and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message
0: What does it mean to be great? Initially, that's the question before us as we turn to today's passage, as we join Jesus once again in the upper room with his first followers. On the other side of the Passover meal, instituting a new meal we refer to as the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion, and in the immediate aftermath of Jesus declaring one of his followers will betray him, sell him out, and hand him over for arrest, the 12 disciples, surprisingly, ironically, begin vying for position as they argue among them who is the greatest. The question of greatness, the question of greatness, of standing out from among others, of being distinctly above average in one's ability, quality, or eminence, the question of greatness is one we often wrestle with too, if not necessarily out loud in a discussion like the disciples, at least through our comparisons with each other. As individually, communally, even these days nationally, the aim of achieving or recapturing greatness seems to be on the mind of so many, Christ's words about himself and those who seek to walk in his footsteps couldn't be more timely for us and couldn't be, after more than 2,000 years, still very controversial. Like the first disciples, we often begin with the question of what does it mean to be great? Even as we remain blind or perhaps intentionally ignorant to the answer that's right in front of us, the answer to a better question, what makes Jesus great? With that, if you have those Bibles open, let's hear from the Gospel of Luke chapter 22. Starting in verse 24, it reads, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So my conversation partner today is someone who's been a longtime member of Grace and has in recent years become a part of our staff, was at one time our high school ministry coordinator, but has for a long time and continues to be the director of our Care Connections ministry, Orange County Care Connections, and also this year is serving as our MOPS coordinator. I am thankful and thrilled to have as a conversation partner today, and I ask you to welcome Mary Taylor as she comes forward, please. Hi. How you doing? I'm doing all right.
1: <laughs> A little nervous in the hot seat.
0: <laughs> this, is not the hot, this is not the hot seat. Everyone thinks it's like going to the principal's office. This is not, it's not what this is about. Um, we, this, this whole series, if you haven't been with us, is again based on three questions. We look at the passage and we ask three questions. The three questions are what I call the huh, what question. It's basically as we just listen to this passage, as we receive it, I always ask the person I'm with, what would help you to better understand this passage? What do you have questions about? What do you want to clarify? And then that question we talk about in advance, and I'm going to recap that, and then we get to two other questions based upon what we talk about from that. So in asking you um, when we met this week, what was your how oh, what question? What would help you to better understand this passage? You really targeted verse 26. If you have your Bibles open, if it's okay if you don't, I'm going to read it to you. Verse 26 reads, it's Jesus saying, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. And it was sort of this idea is Jesus talking about two different people, what's going on here, this, 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 this seems like it makes sense, but if you really step back and think about it, it's a little bit odd. Well, one of the first things I said when we talked was when Jesus says the greatest among you should be like the youngest, it's... it's Luke giving us a subtle way that Jesus is actually reminding the disciples this is the second time that they've had this argument about greatness. Did you do you remember that? Luke chapter 9. So this is the second time this conversation has come up. In Luke chapter 9, if you go all back to chapter 9, verse 46, we read: an argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Now they're just talking about who is the greatest, right? Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Is that a, okay, is that a fire alarm? All, right. all done. <laughs> For it is the one who is least among you, among you all, who is the greatest. So what, when Jesus says... Um, The greatest among you should be like the youngest. I think that what Jesus is alluding back to is that moment when he pulled out a child and said, This this is greatness right here, a child. But then Jesus, as Mary pointed out, then says, The one who rules should be like the one who serves. So, where this verse is confusing and seemingly contradictory is Jesus, on the one hand, is making, restating the idea that greatness is being like a child, but ruling is an exercise of power over another, right? That's what ruling is. And children generally can't take care of themselves. By necessity, children expect, they depend, they rely on the provision and care of others. So if one, if one being like a child, is that's the goal, to be like a child, one who is powerless, how then can one rule and exercise power effectively? You see the, 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 the tension here? Well, I think to break this down, and when we talked about this, I think it's looking, holding both intention and understanding, again, back to where Jesus was in Luke 9 and comes back to here, true greatness in the kingdom of God is having a childlike versus a childish posture, and we talked a lot about that. And what's the difference between a childish versus a childlike posture? Well, when we think about, we say to children, you're being childish, or we even say to adults, you're acting childish, to be childish is to be strongly self-focused, Right? self focused the world revolves around me. Um, in one of my most childish moments, I may have shared this story many years ago, my father, in a fit of frustration, literally grabbed me by the hand, led me outside, pointed up at the sky, and said, do you see that big bright thing up there? Pointing to the sun. And I shook my head and he said, that doesn't revolve around you. That's parenting right there, right? <laughs> childish, childish. Childish is being immature. To be childish is to be immature, it's to be superficial, it's to be lazy, it's to be unwilling to learn and grow, right? Because you're being bratty, you're pouting, you're complaining, you're having a tantrum, you're ungrateful. There's a lot of ungrati- lack of gratitude in being childish. Childish is also never taking responsibility for anything, right? You're defensive, you're blaming others, it's their fault, it's your fault. You're a horrible mom, you're a bad dad, they, it's my sister or my brother did it, or whatever, That's childish, this strongly self-focused world revolves around me, immaturity, defensiveness. What's childlike? Childlike is this self-awareness that children can have, right? This awareness of themselves, yet at the same time, this awareness of the world, of others around them. It's to be childlike is to lean into wisdom. It's to lean into maturity. It's where we're fascinated, where children are surprisingly perceptive, right? They pick up things that we think, gosh, how did you pick that up? And at the same time, to be childlike is to be curious, right? To be questioning in a good way, you know, questioning, to be imaginative. Well, why not? Well, what about this? It's to be childlike is an awareness of dependence. It's offering appreciation. It's this awareness of oneself in a bigger world. And being childlike we also would describe as being a sense of wonder, awe, resilience, resilience. And even resourcefulness at times, right? Where children can be amazingly creative. They think of things that we don't think of as adults. They can be surprisingly compassionate. They can be expressive, especially in terms of love. That's the difference, childlike versus childish. And in that way, when you stop and think about it then, children are not really powerless. You know, we view them as powerless, but children aren't powerless. Power in children comes from an awareness, like all of us, awareness of their relationship to others and to the world. And the, the power of a child is actually expressed through their humility and reliance on others. Not, it's not expressed by their desire for complete autonomy and independence. So, to come back to what Jesus said, if we are aware and live out of our identity as children of God, being childlike, as, if we live in our, out of our awareness and our identity as those who are being served and cared for by our Creator, We will exercise the power we are given not out of a quest for personal autonomy and total independence either. We will rule as we are ruled by serving each other instead of looking to be served by others. And that's why right after this verse, verse 26, Jesus then points, and he does this all the time, he points to the example of his own life to make the point. Jesus says in verse 27, For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? And he points out that in our world, we unhesitatingly would declare the one who is greater is the one who's at the table, the one who back then, by the way, would recline, a posture of comfort, and receive the meal. You know, for many of us, we often, you know, will say offhandedly, the mark of having made it, right, of having arrived is when we're being waited upon, when we're being served. You know, you walk in and there's a sense of awe and hushness of who's that person that everyone's attending to? That's what Jesus is alluding to. When we get asked the question, who's the greater? You look at a room, the person who's being served at a table is greater than the one who is serving. But then Jesus says, but I am among you as one who serves. Jesus, in the midst of our idolization of those who take charge, of those who call their own shot, of those who come to you, you don't go to them, Jesus redefines greatness and leadership with what he says here. Real important, Mary and I talked about this too. Notice Jesus doesn't say there should be no leaders. Jesus declares leadership is not standing apart or standing above, but it's in fact standing with others. Jesus proclaims greatness is defined in service. It's not greatness in defined by sitting back and being served, but by stepping forward and serving others. It's not in the power to take or exercise control, but greatness is in the power, the ability, to give and to share. Greatness finds expression chiefly in working toward the well-being of those around you. That's what Jesus says here. The greatest power of all is finding satisfaction in service, the delight of working for the good of others, even laying down your life for your brother or sister. And it's not a coincidence that we're looking at this passage on Veterans Day weekend when that is what we're lifting up, those who are willing to lay down their life for another in service to their country. One quick thing before I turn it over to Mary that we also talked about is there's, as always in the Gospels, there's parallel passages where we can look at this from another point of view. The parallel passage here is in Matthew 20, and it's interesting because in the parallel passage, it's, uh, if you remember, James and John's mother, who basically comes to Jesus and says, "Hey, can they sit at your right and left hand?", which is basically the positions of greatness. And if you remember this, that's why the fight starts because it ticks off the other ten where they're literally like, "Uh, what the heck." Why do they get to sit at the right and the left? And Jesus says in the midst of that, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The irony of this conversation is so significant because Jesus is about to go to the cross, and the disciples are arguing about which of them is the greatest. On the other side of the cross, even as we sing about it, even as we proclaim the goodness of the cross to others, we as followers of Jesus get caught up in the same arguments, the same power plays, the same rivalry. And yet, if you really understand what's happening here, Jesus is not only suggesting in this moment that his death was on behalf of others. We all talk about that. Jesus died for me. Jesus died to forgive my sins. We all are in on Jesus died on behalf of us. But Jesus is here is making it clear his death wasn't just on behalf of us. His death was to point for us the kind of service that as his followers we should be willing to render for everyone. So Mary, we talked a lot about that. And, and the next question, in, you know, when we walk away from this. And the next question is the so what question. It's like in light of our conversation, what we shared, as you pray about it, as you think about it, what kind of other connections or insights are you making? So Mary, what have you been thinking about?
1: lot of things (laughs) good um we had a long conversation so um but first of all like the childlike part you know I'm a mom I mean that's my one of my lenses that I live my life through um and just thinking about the things that we try to teach our children right like we try to teach them to be self-sufficient we try to teach them to do things on their own um I mean I like I always like Stephen I always like to say you know oh you know we want to teach her to be a grown up that's, you know kind and good in the world but i think we often forget too like taking that away we do this too in our faith life right we we think oh we're going to be more mature we're going to we're going to do these different things to make ourselves look and be the part of like our faith our posture is more towards let's make sure we we look the part but we talked about too like the posture of humility and the Humility, we were talking about how like we think it's like lacking arrogance, lacking boastfulness, those types of things. But I think it's simple, like a child, right? Simple as the fact that we know our place. And not saying, like, know your place, know where you're at in this world, but knowing your place in the kingdom. And I think Jesus' sacrifice shows us our place in the kingdom. It's one of brokenness. And so that's where um, we talked about the conversation I had with my, my friend. She is serving on MOPs with me. MOPs is my mom's group. And she's our service coordinator. And we actually sat down and we kind of had a conversation about, like, what, what, is it, what does it mean to serve? What does it mean for our group to serve? What is this, what is this posture we want to have for our group? And we talked about how sometimes it gets a little bit too on the end of, like, I'm doing I serve because it makes me feel good. And I'm not saying that serving shouldn't make you feel good, Um, but like serving others really should be reflecting back to us who served us first. And so that posture of humility of knowing that we were served first by Christ and his sacrifice. And she shared with me, um, it's an excerpt from Just Mercy by um, Bryan Stevenson, and it was an excerpt about him. He's wrestling with why he does what he does. He's a lawyer who tries to seek justice for people on a death row. And he just lost a, they lost an appeal. Like the person is going to go and be executed. And he was just, why do I do this? Why do I, why am I keep, why do I keep serving in this capacity? And the, the quote that stood out to me was, I do what I do because I'm broken too. And that's the, that's the posture that I've been thinking about kind of like all week is like, why do I serve the, the king of all kings, right? Why do I serve the person who is Jesus? And that's because the person who Jesus took took that that service and showed me what it means to my life. He shows he shows every one of us what it means to, to serve. And that's going back to because we're broken too.
0: I really like the several things that you said, but one of the things that, that we we talked a little bit about that you're you're getting deeper into Is, you know, we talk about service, and it's really important we're clear that the kind of service Jesus is talking about is a different kind of service. You know, service is a very generic word to serve others, service. But Christians, let me put it this way, kind of building off of what Mary said, and this is going to be maybe a shocker for some of us because we talk like this even in the church. Christian service is not volunteerism. And yet, that's often how we talk in the church. We need volunteers. Can you volunteer? Can you help out? In North America and in much of the world, serving others is seen as voluntary. It's seen as not obligatory. You're not obligated to serve. You volunteer to serve. Now you're all going, well, why? what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with volunteerism as being that's what service is, is what it does is it actually puts personal autonomy and our individual freedom valued higher than any sense of responsibility to care for others. It means that getting involved in serving others is wholly up to us. It's something we choose to initiate or terminate at will. And so volunteerism has this way of kind of keeping our, our brother or sister, being our brother or sister's keeper at arm's length. It gives us a sense of detachment. Another way to put this is if you think about it, volunteerism turns service into what benefits me more than what benefits another. That's even how we sell it, right? Why should you volunteer? We're going to make it really good for you. This You're going to love this. We're going to throw this in for you. And so volunteers go well, hmm. What do I want to do? And back—it's even more of the what. Well, what, this makes me feel good. I'm going to choose to serve here because I like that, because that makes me feel good, because I'm going to get something for doing it. Volunteerism it gets centered around this appeal to what we get out of it, to where we choose to serve what makes us feel good, and and as a result, even if we're not conscious of it, the problem with volunteerism, even if we don't think it or say it, it creates a sense of superiority, doesn't it? And for those of you who are shaking your head, know that volunteerism doesn't create a sense of indebtedness. Have you ever volunteered and felt like you weren't appreciated and said, hey, I'm volunteering here. Could I get a thank you? I've been volunteering here for years and no one's ever done anything for me. Volunteerism creates this sense of, hey, if I give, I should get back. I should at least get, and we hear this a lot in the church, the recognition and status of our volunteers if we don't recognize and, and rec- recognize and thank our volunteers, they're not going to volunteer anymore. So they're volunteering so they get recognized and thanked. And Jesus here, notice, rebukes this kind of service. We may miss it because Jesus has this place where he says, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. The next sentence is key. Those who exercise authority over them, others, call themselves benefactors. Back then, Gentile rulers or people of influence would look to increase their honor, their status, by offering favors and doing good works. They were benefactors. And notice Jesus says they call themselves benefactors. So there's a self-referential sense of I'm a benefactor. And the way benefaction worked back in the day, much like it does today, is yes, I will do a service for you. Yes, I will do that. But what are you going to do for me? What? What are you going to do for me? How are you going to help me advance my social standing? How are you going to help me in my situation? And Jesus' point here is that idea of benefaction, of serving in order to get, or serving in terms of what's going to benefit me, is a, it becomes lording it over. Lording it over your subjects because you're seeking personal gain, lauded by the people for your good works, rather than actually caring about how does this impact the other person. Yeah, that's great if it helps them out. Good for them. That's, that's awesome. But it's, at the end of the day, it's ultimately, this makes me feel good. This makes me look good. But Jesus very strongly says, but you're not to be like that. Christian service, serving others like Jesus, so it's a specific kind of service. It's not just serving, but serving others like Jesus is not about service that makes us feel good. This again, buckle up, everybody. Serving others like Jesus is not about what makes us feel good. Serving others like Jesus is what leads to goodness, good things. And that doesn't always feel good, and it isn't always particularly good for us. Reflect on your life and look at where you serve in the name of Jesus and ask yourself, do I, do I cross that boundary? Or is service for me always, well, it's got to be good for me. It's got to feel good. Where is that service come out of a place of, this doesn't feel good, this is uncomfortable, I don't, this is outside my comfort zone, I don't like this. Or where is service for another person for something good, but you go, yeah, it's going to be good for them, but it's not going to be good for me. Hello, election day. How did you vote? Did you vote for what's good for you? Or did you vote for what's good for the country? Or do you think that what's good for you is what's good for the country? Go ahead.
1: Well, and then <laughs> taking it in, you're in the hot seat right now. Man. I know. That's like, what I'm, I'm putting just saying, like, <laughs> I realized. I <laughs> uh, just, like, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that it's hard because I, we talked about this too, is like my personality. I said, I don't know how many people like the Enneagram, whatever, if you, whatever you think about it, but I'm the two or the <laughs> helper. Um, yeah, that's right. Twos, where are you at? Um, and oftentimes I know, and I said this, too, is like, you know, in my early 20s, it was a different posture than what it is now, and I'm thinking about it at 32, I'm like a little bit more humble in seeing those points in my life where I get in that posture of like, I give and I give and I give and I give, and what do I get in return? And it's not it's not saying that that's why I give, but sometimes we devolve, right? Mm. Sometimes it's not even intentionality of where you're going with it. You may go into things with the intentionality, the intentional of goodness, but then we devolve when we lose sight of the one who is supposed to be our center, right? Like, I can can go with all the intentions of being good to serve, because that's part of who I am, that is how God created me to be, but when we wear ourselves down, when we start to really get into the nitty gritty of those moments where it's not comfortable, or I don't really like this that I'm doing, but I'm doing it anyways, why am I doing this? We lose sight and so that's where we can often become you know begrudging we can be oh my goodness where's my where's my I have my pride why am I not being served why does nobody see what I'm doing or we can even forget to like look in front of us and see the very reason why we serve to see the very image of Christ before us and the people that you're serving the people who are just as broken as you are and that's, that's the part that we talked about, too. Like, I kind of get begrudging. I mean, I, I, Stephen and I, you know, I can get begrudging with him. I love you, my love. Um, but I can get a little bit gripey sometimes when I'm like, hey, why aren't you doing this to my standards? And that's what we do. We put our standards on this. But then we talked about, like, how do I break that cycle? We talked about that, too. And I was like, I serve. My husband. And it's not the serving we all talk about, like, you know, the the serving as a definition of a noun, what service looks like. It's a posture, Mm. right? It's a posture of service. It's part of that identity of who Christ has called me to be. And he has called me to look at the people in front of me, my husband, my children, my friends, my family, the people I work with, and see them with the eyes of Jesus. To see them not just for their brokenness, but despite their brokenness. And that's where I have nothing but I can do is serve. So sometimes, just a little personal side note, I know we're like getting a little better. I, sometimes when I'm in a very gripey mood or I'm kind of like, like, I, like I'm like, oh, everything's getting on my nerves and this and that. Or if, if Stephen's wearing on me, I love you. But sometimes, you know, I'm only human. The thing I do is I simply make him a cup of coffee in the morning. So like, and I know that sounds simple and weird, but, like, it's not. It's, it's simply saying, like, his needs are, are above my needs. And right now I want to show him that love in the simplest of action. And it changes the trajectory of, like, my posture, my heart for the rest of the day. And then I'm less gripey because I've recentered on what's most important is loving the person before me.
0: What I love that you're, you're doing there because I think it lines up biblically is we can talk about service in isolation but if service as Jesus defines it is this willingness to put the needs of others up front even before our own, service as the Bible defines it is akin to love. They're synonymous. Love is service, service is love. If it's, and again, it's, but it's a particular kind of love. I think, I lo- the, let's get back to the, the quote from Just Mercy and even what you were saying. I like how you said devolve. We, we all claim that we're loved by Jesus, but we don't live out of that love of Jesus. Mm. What I mean by that is we claim we're loved by Jesus. I'm loved by the Lord, and yet we go and we serve looking for love to get validation that we are loved. And then ultimately, when we do get frustrated, when, we get, when we're not getting the, the, the thank you or the response, don't we often say, I'm only doing this because I love you. No, no, you're doing it because you love yourself, and you want to know that you're okay. And the other person's like, I didn't ask you to do this, but I'm doing it because I love you. No, you're doing it because you're looking to find love where the, the, that love will never satisfy you. The, the devolving is coming back to this recognition. And, and the, the quote from, again, Just Mercy, it's that realization that my ability to serve, my call to serve, comes out of the, the God who serves me, the God who loves me. When I'm aware that not just I don't just say it, but I'm aware profoundly that Christ loves me. That, and how he loves me. Oh, how he loves me, right? That song then that changes how I love someone else. I'm not serving someone else because I'm looking for them to validate me, to say that I'm okay, that I'm loved, or to give me love. I'm doing it because I have love to give, love to share. It's an, it's an absolutely, an entirely different posture. You know, and, and I, I I love what you said there. What, are the, what other thoughts are you having in terms of this?
1: Well, we talked about, like, I... It, sometimes we have to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. Is what I always say. Yeah. Like, I know it sounds silly. We have to check ourselves. Yeah. Before I, I we always wreck say always say check yourself before you wreck yourself. I know that's like.
0: So unpack kitschy, that. Let's, let's explain but, that.
1: But like sometimes we do have to take those those moments to be like, where am I serving out of? Like where am I? But also like. Who's am I? Because you think this actually goes back to like an identity thing, right? Mm. Like do we truly believe, not just, we talked about how sometimes how can you explain to somebody, you know, Christ died for your sins, so you should be happy about that. How can you just say that to somebody but actually not live it and model it in your life too? And not also actually believe it. So there's a difference, right? It's not just saying some platitude to somebody. We often fall into those, I think, in the church, and I I think they come from well-meaning places. But, like, this idea to say, like, just saying something like that is going to change someone's life, no. I think that people witnessing how you live, who you serve, and how you serve, or even just how you love and who you love, because sometimes we don't want to love the people, That are surrounding us, but if we choose to love them, is that not more speaking to the sacrificial love, the actual like love that God calls us into to love Him, and love those around us? I
0: love that you're saying this because one of the most common things you'll get as a pastor, and I'm not asking for a show of hands, is part of what we're called for called as it was we're called to share the faith as followers of Jesus, and I can't tell you it's almost redundant. I know what people are going to say when it's like, "Hey, you should share your faith." Oh. I'm just not really smart. I don't really know the Bible as well as you do. Oh, I can't, I don't know what to say. That's not evangelism. The saying comes later. The serving comes first. You want to share the faith? Love, love like Jesus. Love where it's uncomfortable. Love someone who even you disagree with. Someone who you consider a stranger, like I don't get you at all. Or an enemy, I don't like you at all. That's evangelism. And when you serve like that, trust that the Spirit is working. And when you serve like that and the person says, why are you doing this? Why are you loving me, serving me like this? That's your moment. Not that you have to get all theological and explain the Bible inside and out, but you can say, because this is how I'm loved by Jesus. And talk about how you understand that Jesus loves you. Talk, back to, again, the Just Mercy Quote your brokenness, and how in the midst of your brokenness, your imperfection, your flaws, so the very things that everyone says with evangelism, I can't do that because I'm imperfect. So am I! Just because I went to seminary, just because this is what I do, doesn't mean that I'm the Bible answer man.
1: What? <laughs> and,
0: <laughs> my evangelism is much more powerful. My witness to Christ through my love and my service. Again... I can say, preach great sermons, do all kinds of stuff, but at the end of the day, you want to know whether or not I am following Jesus? you want to know whether or not I am reflecting the service and love of Christ? Talk to my wife. Talk to my kids. Talk to my neighbors. That's, that's what it is. Evangelism begins. Sharing Christ begins with being the, will, the willingness to love and to, to serve others.
1: I think it's hard, too, because we think, like, I mean, I'm sitting in this chair, Like, do you think, I don't have a Bible education, like, but I have what I've learned and what God works in me and what I've allowed for him to work in me. And I was nervous to sit up here, but like, I think that, that like having this kind of series too, where we sit and speak with people who are in our community shows everybody that this call is on all of us. Whether you speak eloquently, whether you know the whole Bible front to cover, I think that, it goes back to that that brokenness, but also like the childlike part, right? Mm. Is yeah. you can ask my daughter about her faith in Jesus, and it won't I will weep sometimes because she's so like so pure about it, and so understanding, and so I just the 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 simpleness of it, right? Like beyond going these complicated things, we can get into like. You know, denominations do this, do that, people do that, how we, how we take communion, how we do these different things, how we worship, that doesn't matter at the end of the day. It doesn't. And that's the part that I think the perfect example, too, is, like, my, my, my family's here. Stephen's family is my family. And, like, we come from different backgrounds and denominations, but, like, the things that we do, the things we talk about, the things that we work through, that's faith, That's working through with grace and humility and serving one another because we can sit in that space, all things, however anyone worships, everyone thinks that they look at the Bible, and it still comes back to the truth, right? The truth of the matter, and that's Jesus.
0: Something you said earlier that I want to come back to, and this is kind of moving into the last question, which is sort of the now what. So in light of this, how do, what does it look like to apply the stuff we're talking about? We're, we're dabbling in that a little bit. But you talked about how we raise our children. We talked about this, and I want to bring it up again. A place to start to live differently is maybe recognizing some places where we need to check ourselves before we continue to wreck ourselves, to use Mary's term here. Proverbs 22. Most of you probably know this verse. You maybe even have it memorized. 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now that works both ways, positive and negative, everybody. So consider this, and this is what we talked about. Inherently, to a person, if you are a parent, we want the best for our children, right? We want them, many of us would say as parents, to have a better life than we had. We desire for them to be great. But the question is, what is our measure of greatness? And ask yourself in our day-to-day lives, how are we raising our children? Greatness in the world, greatness which and which it's it's so out all the place all over the place is get the best marks in school, top marks in school, great, best on the team, distinctive, stand out, great. Remember a couple years back, I might even ruffle some feathers here. Everyone was all upset about this. Everybody gets a trophy backlash. Everybody gets a trophy. I hate that. Do you? Um, The gospel is everybody being offered a trophy. (laughs) Do you ever think about that? Jesus doesn't say, okay, guys, competition. Who's going to be first? Who's going to be second? Everybody else who's not third? You're out of here. No, everybody is offered the trophy of eternal life. So next time you say, I hate everybody gets a trophy, maybe think about that in light of your faith. This idea of parenting is we raise our children, this think, and I think to a person, I, I myself fall into this. What's the goal of raising your children? I want my children to be autonomous. I want them to be self-sufficient. I want them to get out of the house on their own, take care of themselves, make a name for themselves. I want them to be somebody. And again, what's our measurement of our children have arrived when they are being served? Everything about how we raise our children, almost everything, I won't say everything, almost everything about how we raise our children, if you really think about it, is the opposite of what it looks like to follow Jesus. And we wonder why our children don't share our faith. Because we tell them that love—there ha- there is no greater love than this, than laying your life down for another person. But hey, you know what, you better take care of your own business. Hey, you better be self-sufficient. You better take care. Of, you better not rely on somebody else. That's not how we work here. You need to be independent. You need to, be, you need to take care of yourself. But Jesus will take care of anything you can't take care of. We raise our children in a way that's opposite of what it looks like to follow Jesus. So I'll just leave it with this, and I'm going to let Mary weigh in on this. What if we raised our children to actually be children of God versus children of the world? What if we raised our children, not just every now and again, but the, the focus was raising our children with a profound awareness, instilling in them a profound awareness of God's provision and grace, and a profound awareness of their need and their dependence upon the Lord? And what if we taught them the goal as our children grew up is to have a daily sense of humble gratitude for God that is that is expressed not by focusing so much on taking care of themselves. Aiming to be served, but instead we raise them out of that profound awareness of God's provision, that humble gratitude, their focus as they grow up is how can I take care of others? Out of my awareness of how God loves and serves me, how can I seek to love and serve others? Would our children become different adults? I think yes.
1: I think also we do the same thing, not even just with our children, but with society in general. Mm. Um, I think we can often fall into just saying like, well, those people need to take care of their business. They need to be independent. They need to figure it out. Or the problem isn't, isn't it's the problem with that. We're just going to point to that. And we're just going to ignore where we fall in line with that problem too. Um, and so, I I mean, yeah, should we have our children learn how to be, you know, serving others, being the like the one who serves out of, that about knowing, you know, their dependence upon Jesus or should we first too also live out a dependence of Jesus because how can we teach our children to do that if they don't even see it from their parents? How can we teach society that if we're not willing to say that in this world where everyone wants to scream louder than the other person? That's the biggest thing I think that's been the hardest for me to deal with in the last like 2 years honestly, but also beyond that is seeing the brokenness of this world and nobody, nobody wants to just say, "I can just put myself aside and be on dependence of God, but also, I can put myself aside so that I can be with this person, love this person, regardless. Um, we are, at mops, we have like tenets of like um, our theme, our theme is we go together." So sorry, that's just how I, every time I think of it, we go together. But like how beautiful is we go together? In a place where, in a world right now that's severely broken into pieces, fractured, by this mentality of utter independence on ourselves and what works for us and what serves us, and one of the tenets we have different three different tenets, but one of them is be unoffendable. How much of your faith is informed by your offense? That's how I feel, like how much of our parenting is even informed by our offense, how much of our relationships with other people is informed by our feeling like we have to defend ourselves when really we're just supposed to be coming together in community based off of the one thing, which is being broken before everyone. My brokenness isn't more than your brokenness. My need for Jesus isn't any less or more than you. We all need it. And that's the that's the hardest part, I think. Is and I was telling Stephen on our drive here because you know, I, one of the scriptures that I always go back to is, "He must become greater; I must become less." Hmm. When John the Baptist is talking about that and and saying like it, everyone was saying, "Oh, John, you're supposed to be the one." And sometimes I feel like in in the faith we're being told you're supposed to be the one who tells people about Jesus, but instead, John the Baptist takes a step back because. Really, we got to let Jesus shine in the forefront and let our lives be that testimony. Let our lives show where our heart is really coming from. And you think that that is not even just for children, but for the people around us.
0: It's a good, it's a good word because as adults, even if we're grown up, it's, it's not this idea that when we're adults, that's it. And some of us act like, well, I'm set in my ways. We're, I'm done. I'm, 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 I'm over. But this idea of being born again, this idea of becoming children of God, it's never too late with God. We worship a God of resurrection. We can be changed as adults. We can become children again. And, and I really appreciate what you said, because in the last couple of years, I think we've reverted to children, but we've reverted to children of the world rather than children of God. Mm-hmm. We're, chi- we're childish. We're having tantrums. Mm-hmm. We're defensive. We blame everybody else. I hate to say it, and I'm going to go here again. Democrat or Republican, I don't care what you are, you're both wrong. And the problem is that you both think you're right. Rather than realizing that, that as with many things, when it comes to worldly stuff, the truth is somewhere in the middle. And the more that we get entrenched of this is right and this is wrong and and the two cannot come together, the more we're going to stay separated, the more we're going to be childish, immature, we're not going to grow, we're not going to learn. But when we become children of God, not through our own will and effort, but through submitting to the power of the Holy Spirit, that we're given the, the the power of the word of god we become childlike and instead of becoming defensive we become curious mm-hmm. imaginative creative all these things we're lacking right now it feels like it's just we're struggling right now it's like a drought because we're so entrenched as you said in defensiveness you know and i and i just want to you know just to prime the pump a little bit one of the things that just gets me about this passage, and, we, and we, this is where we started, is it's one of those passages, one of these stories in the Gospels, it's so easy to open up and read, and when you read it, you like shake your heads and go, those stupid disciples.
1: Look at Man, them again. Man, <laughs> those
0: guys. Oh, look at the men. <laughs> <laughs> just
1: kidding. Sorry.
0: <laughs> you know, that Jesus has just instituted, <laughs> he's washed their feet, the c- communion, and they're talking about who's the greatest. But the thing is, when we shake our, before we shake our heads at the disciples, when's the last time we checked our own ego? Ask yourself these questions, not asking for a show of hands. Do you need to be the one in control?
1: Do you need to be the center?
0: (laughs) Do you need to be the center (laughs) of attention? Do you need to get your own way? Do you need to win? And for those of you who are shaking your heads no, think about what the people around you would say in answer to these questions. Because if you answered yes or someone you know answers yes to any of these questions, Jesus isn't just talking to those stupid disciples.
1: <laughs>
0: He's talking to you, to me, to us, to all of us. And the thing is, and this is, you know, I, again, I, I know I'm really getting in trouble here as we're wrapping up, but we may not say it out loud. The disciples said it out loud. That was their mistake. <laughs> right? They wrote it. You should have just kept it to themselves. <laughs> Because we all know in the quietness of our heart, divorced from the Holy Spirit, right, when we de-evolved, to use Mary's language, we all wrestle with it. It's so out there with competing with each other to be the greatest rather than seeking greatness and serving each other. In the privacy of our thoughts, we indulge thoughts like these. I'm doing a better job than that person because I'm doing... I'm more spiritual than them because I... I please God more than they do because I... Now, I want to address that there are, there are some people in this room that it's the exact opposite. Mary alluded to this. It's the opposite. I'm not as good as they are. I'm not doing as well as they are. So we can either be in the comparison game and think we're better than... Or we can think we're less than. But here's the thing. The gospel isn't about maintaining a superiority complex. The gospel isn't about, I'm better than so-and-so. But the gospel also isn't about holding on to an inferiority complex. I'm not as good as so-and-so. As Mary said, and I want to repeat it because it's so important. The good news is we are all the same in the grace we need from Jesus and in the grace we receive from Jesus. We are united so in the midst of all of our divisions, this is what brings us together. People are like, I don't know how we're going to get back together as a country. I don't know how we're going to get back. This is how we get back together. This is how we find unity. In grace. It's, it could not be more of a right time for the gospel to be preached, to be shared, to be witnessed than now. Because we are united in the love offered to us as children of God. And in the love that we have been given to share with each other. Mary, I'm going to give you the last word before I close. The last, the last word. The last, last word.
1: That's, um, well, I think as we also, as we're leaving, we're going to be going to the table. We, this is a story that's at the table of yeah. the beginning of, you know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's at the table. And again, just reminding us like who sat at that table. And we talked about this and I'm like, Jesus sat at level at this table, even lower. Actually, we talked about how before he washed the feet of the disciples he sat at this meal, and he broke bread, and he served it to them. Um, and I just, I, I always, and I was telling you this, Pastor because I'm like, I always have this, like, heart to feel like I'm like, Judas is at that table. Yeah. And, like, sometimes, you know what I mean? We get caught up in when we're coming to this table even saying, like, oh, well, I'm not good enough, or I can't approach that, or I can't do that. Like, that I'm not, I, I'm just not, not worthy, or I'm not this. And, or the opposite, so-and-so shouldn't be here. So and so shouldn't be doing that. I know what they're going on in their life. And so it's just this reminder that this this is the table that Jesus set for us. And I, I just think that it's it's the same table that one day will be an open table for all of us, right? In the kingdom of God when it comes here on earth as it is in heaven. And I just keep thinking about why are we always looking at the people sitting at our table being like, Well, why are they at this table? Mm. Peter, why, we, am I at this yeah, table. why am I at this table it's, it's both both of those things we can be the person saying why is so why is Peter at this table I know what he's gonna do I mean we're reading it after the fact of course but like also why am I at this table hmm. and I just I'm reminded that it's a throne of grace it's a table set before me by the Lord and the seat is open for all of us at
0: that table and at that table that we, would all, we all want to be at, that we're invited to, and, and you, you said this, I want to underscore it. it would be, for many of us, it would just be enough if we could be at the table. But we're at a table where Jesus is serving us. Mm-hmm. How often do you think about that when you come for communion? Jesus is serving you yet again. Mm-hmm. And it brings back this idea of, I would, be, it would just be enough to be sitting at the table, but I'm being served mm-hmm. by the one who sets this table. And how does that then carry out into how we live our lives? So we'll wrap it up with this. In this, world we, you know, in this world we live in, we all know to be first is to be in the best position. We want to be noticed first, we want to be asked first, we want to be considered first, and that rolls out in a lot of different ways. We want the best paying job, the highest, highest position in the company, top leadership in the church. We live in a world where the poor serve the rich and the weak serve the strong. But Jesus says it's not to be that way for us. Instead, Jesus says that greatness is to be found, to be reflected, not in being served, but in serving others. In discovering the riches, the delight that's found in working for the good of others, in experiencing the strength, not the weakness, that comes not from fortifying your position, but the strength that comes from seeking the well-being of those around you. And Jesus doesn't just talk this way. He doesn't just teach about such greatness that comes through serving others. Jesus models and embodies it. And he models it, embodies it, everybody, even before the cross. Even before the cross. The cross is the culmination. Think about it. Read through your gospel accounts. Even before the cross, Jesus never refused to serve anyone. Not the leper, not the hemorrhaging woman, not the divorced woman at the well, not the Roman centurion, not the tax collector, not the Pharisee named Nicodemus, not perceived outsiders like the Gentiles or the Samaritans, not the hungry, not the blind, not the prisoner. No one was refused service by Jesus because at the cross, and even at the cross, Jesus was serving, offering his life for those who sought to take it. No one takes my life from me. I give it willingly, Jesus says. And Paul, going all the way back, I gotta, because what we talked about this, I gotta mention this verse, this idea of what it looks like for us. Paul in the letter, the letters of the New Testament reflect on the gospel. Okay, if they're doing what we're doing, what does it mean in light of what just happened? What does it mean in light of what we believe about Jesus? And Paul in Philippians 2 writes this: your attitude. Our attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the very form of a servant. We worship a God who never refuses to serve anyone. And that's the thing. One of the hardest things about being a Christian and it is hard is loving people that are hard for us to love. It's serving people that we really don't want to serve. Loving people who don't follow our rules, serving people who believe differently than we do. But Jesus in this moment, and he does it elsewhere too, confronts us with a choice. We who say we follow him. He confronts us with a contrast and a choice. If Jesus is the greatest of all time and he lives not to be served but to serve, how can we live any differently? Would you pray with me? Good and heavenly Father, we confess to you that we already we confess to you what you already know. That rather than defining greatness in light of your character and will revealed in the person of your Son Jesus Christ, we declare and we strive for greatness. We perceive and label greatness in others based on our measures of status, rank, and recognition. We so easily can become obsessed with being and doing what is best for us rather than acknowledging greatness in your kingdom, is seeking and doing what is best for those in need. Remind us, instill within us yet again, O God, both the conviction and the inspiration to recognize greatness comes from service and sacrifice, that the best we can do and be derives from abiding and following you in our care and compassion towards each other. Continue to mold us by your Holy Spirit into a people who, like you, enter into the spaces and relationships you have given to us, not to be served, but to serve, to bless, to encourage, to love. We ask this in Jesus' name, all God's people say. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.